Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com from nice guy productions world headquarters overlooking the glamorous san fernando valley i'm mick garrison this is the fun size edition of postmortem ama where you can ask me anything and asking your questions on your behalf is producer joe russo producer joe how are you mick I'm I'm really good. My uh, my fifth movie, uh, this one I'm a producer on, started shooting this week. Uh, Yay! Congratulations. That's excellent you. news. Uh, so that's that's that was that was a really nice nice thing this week. Um, so I'm I'm pumped. I'm jazzed. I'm I'm excited to ask you some questions. We got some really good ones from our fans this week. Um, I expect nothing less. Me neither. You want to dive in? Let's dive in. All right. Uh, Joshua Martin asks, what is your favorite episode of the Twilight Zone? Ooh. Ooh. Well, the, there are so many to choose from. I know. Uh, I was, I was kind of glad he directed this only at you. <laughs> well, <laughs> the one that sticks with me the most is to serve man, even though it's a punchline show, um, everything building up to the punchline is so great. Um, and the last line of dialogue, if there's anyone out there who had, do you think it'd be too big a spoiler? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the show has been around for a little while, Nick, I think. Yeah. I think since 1959, I think <laughs> maybe if you're going to watch it, you've seen it, but you know, the punchline of to serve man, these aliens who come to, uh, to earth and they had they're taking people on board their ship to visit them they're very pleasant delightful welcoming aliens and they have this book called to serve man which everybody thinks is the most wonderful piece of humanitarianism and and peaceful wishes for the galaxy if not the universe and the last line is we've figured it out we've cracked the code we can we, we've translated the book to serve man it's a cookbook and boom, <laughs> there you have it. Yeah. Also, also in ref callback to our uh, Simpsons question last week, also a uh, True House of Horror uh, episode. Uh, well, well uh, anyway, I missed that one. But <laughs> I know uh, you have. Yeah, we, 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 that's well documented now. Uh, no, that's <laughs> that is a great one. I mean, gosh, it's it's probably pretty pretty cl cliche to say, but I you know I do I do love the twist of Eye of the Beholder. Um, yeah, you know, and and it was very stuff. very fun to do uh, an homage to it in Nightmare Cinema. 
Um, Indeed, so, it was. Yep. Yes. Yep. Uh, well, moving on, SMJ991 writes, music is so integral to sleepwalkers. Did you have any backup tracks in mind if the clearances didn't go through? I'm assuming he's talking about uh, the Enya piece and and Do You Love Me and things like that. Uh, The Enya piece actually was not my first choice. It ended up being a backup piece. Wow. Um, well, well, there was a, a, a Nirvana song we were going to use for the uh, car chase scene, but instead uh, the studio decided <clears throat> not to pay for that. And uh, Nicholas <laughs> Pike scored it and got some amazing guitarists to, to play the lead during that. But Crowded House had written a song that had never been on one of the albums and uh, uh, Walking on My Spot. And they, I screened the movie for them and they came up with this song. They thought it would be fantastic. And I loved it as well. But the music department gave me the Enya song to listen to and play. And they didn't want to pay $30,000 for an original Crowded House song. Right. Uh, And they ended up, we ended up putting in the Enya song as a, uh, salve to that and it ends up being an a, iconic piece of music in in that movie and absolutely it's the right choice at that time i would have put in the crowded house song but <laughs> uh but the enya piece is so haunting and perfect for uh, it, it really makes that ending sing did you know it when you saw it i definitely knew it once we cut it in nicholas brown the editor uh had put that in and it was like oh Okay, this is the right choice. That's awesome. That's great. It's 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 wonderful when something clicks that perfectly in editing. Yeah, and it happens often in music. Once you put music to images, you know right away if it works or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Greg asks, Mick and Joe, what do you think is the value of short films in terms of their role and the development of feature horror films and the career of filmmakers um well it certainly has a big role in the choice of filmmakers i don't know about becoming feature films i've often worked in the reverse uh like in the case of of uh nightmare cinema my story was originally a feature-length script um and i've done that before in a couple of television things um quicksilver highway being one of them but uh, as far as a, a filmmaker's career is concerned, it's the best calling card you have. Yeah. You know, nowadays people can afford to make feature-length films, but the the staying power, the the ability for executives to watch them, is more limited than to be able to to win a festival uh, of short films. It's a lot easier to get attention with a short film than trying to get a feature film into a festival. And um, it shows you have storytelling ability. Obviously, the ability to tell a feature-length story is an enhancement, but it's very important. Joe, you know, you you used short films to get to where you are. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely did. I, I mean, look, I think the first most important thing in doing a short film is to learn if you actually like making movies. 
uh, because the process on a short, you know, it's still going to be similar akin to the process on a feature or, you know, just bigger scale. No, you're telling a three act story in a feature film and it's much more demanding, but the, the mechanics are the same. The mechanics are the same. Exactly. And I think, I think that is probably the most important thing is, you know, before you, you go off and you make a a try and, and attempt a feature, you know, uh, you know, which might might end up being a fool's errand, at least, you know, you know, on a micro scale, do you actually like doing this? And I think that's really important. And I think, you know, the more shorts you do, the better you get, the more you can iron out uh, your your style and, and you can figure out how to use the language of cinema, how to use lenses, how to work with a crew, how to work with actors. I mean, all of those skills translate into becoming a good feature director. Uh, that's all, that's all important. And, you know, for me, I made a half hour short that got me an agent. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, so even though it was a romantic comedy, an R rated type romantic comedy <laughs> and not a horror film. Yeah. Once I, I got the agent, he was the one who ended up setting me up uh, with Spielberg on amazing stories. So um, it I would not have been able to afford to make a feature film. I barely could afford making this half hour short. Yeah, I know that. You know, Uh, 16 millimeter film at that time. Yep. But uh, they're very important. And, uh, you know, by all means, I encourage anybody to to get their practice doing shorts. Yeah. And look, I do think, just to speak to Greg's other piece of the question, uh, the short that wants to be a feature um, I think I think that's absolutely right. Mick said, like, it, you know, executives have short attention spans and it can be a way to get them excited about reading your feature script, um, you know, as kind of a tantalizing teaser to it, uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and we mentioned him uh, on the show before, but a, a friend of mine, you know, he won South by Southwest with his short. I showed it to a studio exec. He signed with CAA. They took the a feature pitch based on the short out to the town. Uh, it sold to a studio and now he's in prep on it. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of big feature. feature films that came from, from shorts like district yep. nine and things like that, you know? Yeah. So, so there absolutely is a path to, from making a short to a feature. Uh, but, but more than anything, I think in terms of developmental uh, you know, it's, it's just learning. Do you like doing this? And then if you do uh, how to sharpen those skills. All right. Next yep. up, we've got Lex Marston. Uh, he writes and okay. says, I always hear veteran filmmakers talk about how anybody can make a movie these days. Just pick up your phone and do it. But I don't see veteran filmmakers doing that themselves very often. Why do you think that is? Is it because once you've made movies with a large budget, huge crew and studio distribution that there's no desire to use them that way? Is it because it cheapens uh, the filmmaker's worth to a studio? Seems like we should be getting independent short films from big name directors all the time, but we don't. I've never heard anybody say it. (laughs) Just pick up a phone and make a movie. I have encouraged people to do that, to hone their skills and the like. Right. Yeah. Once you have worked with a professional cast and crew, it's very difficult to just uh, say, okay, this weekend uh, I'm going to put together something and use my iPhone with my friends and the like. Right. Um, You know, it is my line of work. 
and it's what I do for a living as well as my passion. It is my hobby as well as my passion, but it's my profession. So um, I am not spending my weekends with my iPhone and buddies making shorts. Uh, <laughs> the time I spend when I'm doing filmmaking is when, uh, it, you know, it's not necessarily big budgets or anything, but working with professionals that, you know, are going to deliver the best of, of what you're capable of doing. Yeah. I think the other real answer too, is just the industry keeps you very busy writing projects, developing projects, shopping projects, meeting with people about projects. It doesn't leave you a lot of time to go off and just make an experimental movie. You right. kind of have to, I mean, any movie you make, whether it's a short or a feature or whatever, again, the process is the same. So it's going to require just as much work to make a little movie in your backyard as it is to make a big movie. And it requires just as much of a time commitment. So right. I think you really- And all of the ideas, uh, when you've got a great idea, you want to turn it into something that will- be part of your profession and not necessarily just go, well, uh, maybe I'll make this 20 minute movie to put online or something. You know, uh, you get tired after you do an eight hour mini series or something. And the last (laughs) thing you want to do for fun when you're done with that, where jump and do something else. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people do do kind of some fun things here and there. I mean, you know, Adam Blomkamp. Yeah. Yeah. Neil Blomkamp or one of our guests, Adam Green, uh, does yeah. a Halloween short every year, um, which, you know, there are, those are always really fun. Um, yeah. So I, I think filmmakers do do it, but they're, they're really devoting the time to do it. And I think that's the big, that's the thing is, is can they find the, the time and the bandwidth in their schedule to carve that out? Exactly. And uh, not just the time to do it, but like I said, if you've got an idea that's worth making into a film, you try and set it up as something you'll get paid to make. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, and this one will put you more on the spot. Uh, oh, dear. Verdi Nick asks, Nick, would you ever be tempted to make a micro budget film with friends for no money in your backyard? Self-release, no studio heads to fight, nobody to answer to, your pure free expression. <laughs> well, you know, if there were a circumstance where a bunch of people got together and said, you know, let's do this for fun. Right. And it was a group of people that uh, I respected and enjoy the company of and the like and doing it for fun because making a movie is hard work. You know, yep. you're working a minimum 12 hour day and yeah. yes, I would do it for fun under the right circumstances, but um the idea of making a feature film at a micro budget that may never see screens. Sure. Something else entirely. Well, but I think to be fair though, you Mick Garris making something speculatively and putting it out there, you have a brand awareness that people, people would find it. People would see it. Uh, but I would also say and argue to counterpoint this, uh, you already did that and you did it twice with Masters of Horror and Nightmare Cinema. You got right. together with a group of your friends and you found a way to make the projects for a price. And in exchange, you got complete creative freedom. Uh, complete creative freedom, yes. And we were also paid for our effort because, yep. you know, the value of your work is determined by the marketplace. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think commercially when I'm writing and when I'm creating, 
but um, it is so all-encompassing. I write scripts all the time that many of them never get bought or made. Right. And to me, that's the equivalent of going out in the, and, and making a micro-budget movie because it's all in my head and I do it all the time. But doing five weeks of 16-hour days for free with a bunch of people who aren't being paid, it's just not fair to them. And yeah. it would be really difficult to, to be able to expend that kind of energy on something that uh, you might be able to achieve on a level where um, you can hire professionals who get paid what they're worth. I totally agree. Uh, weird Writer writes... As a wannabe filmmaker, do you have any tips for people like me, someone whose mind flips between subjects and ideas who want to get into the field? So the way I interpret the question is, it sounds like maybe he's got all of these different ideas creatively and he's jumping between them. That's, that's kind of how, how do, I guess the question is, how do, how do we help him focus? How do we help weird writer focus on an idea? Yeah, to take away the ADD element. Uh, yes. Uh, well, if you need discipline, yeah. so many writers, you're not writer until you've written and right. finishing is something so many uh, potential writers don't achieve. And the, once you finish a screenplay or a book or a short story or a song or whatever you're writing, the sense of accomplishment and the realization, oh, I can do this. It's possible is overwhelming and it's great. Um, don't start a new script every day, you know, work on the one you're doing until you finish it. And, you know, the distractions, um, you have to, as a writer, to be able to have the discipline to see it through and not be distracted by other ideas unless those ideas are inspired by this story and you can fit them into it. But if not, save them, write them down, save them, put them aside and, you know, start it at another time. But if you're excited about a project you're writing now, just devote yourself to it and finish it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You got to buckle down and do the work. Have you ever been in the middle of writing something, Nick, though, and, and some other new idea has been so powerful a draw that you you put what you were working on aside and, and jumped over to it? Or, or do you feel like you've been able to kind of resist that temptation and, and hold it off? Yeah, I never have done that because I, I, I'm totally committed to something while I'm writing it. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I write fairly quickly. I've never spent more than five weeks writing a draft, a first draft of a screenplay. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's no time for other ideas. I, you know, I'm pounding out my 10 pages a day. Uh, and, you know, every day I start reading from the beginning to where I left off so that yep. I could move right into the mood, into the set, yep. into the location, into the story. And, you know, by, by uh, page 90, you know, it's, it's a long start to your day before you actually start to. Yeah, I do. It. I do the same thing. And the further you get into the script, the, the harder it gets to the, get to the new pages. I can skip uh, the first act. Yeah. <laughs> Some, sometimes I do. When you, when you get to that point though, do you um, sometimes, sometimes I'll be like, okay, maybe like every three days I'll start from the beginning, but, but I'll always go back a little bit, you know, like 20, 30 pages. Yeah. I think. 
Yeah. 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 But, but the point is I'm devoted to the story in front of me yeah. and, uh, and uh, I don't really have those blackbirds pecking at my brain from <laughs> other ideas, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're right though. It's good motivation to try to finish what you're working on to get to that reward. And, and I know we've talked about this in the past, but I also think, you know, I, ideas are fleeting. Um, sometimes you can have an idea and you can explore it and it might not be a great idea. And so yeah. I think, you know, if you do have that idea, like you said, write it down, come back to it when you're done. And, and maybe you might not even, I mean, maybe it won't even seem as great as it did when you initially thought of it, you know, uh, or so, it'll be, it'll seem even better. And you go, and now it's time to jump into a new one. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's a much more positive way to look at it. <laughs> Mr. Negativity, Joe. Yeah, Joe. Oh boy. All right. Producer Joe. Yeah. <laughs> we got to start calling him directors, Joe soon. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe, maybe I need one more under my belt before I make that full transition. All right. <laughs> Anthony M beach asks, Mick and Joe, can you explain how a cinematographer is different from the director and what each person handles while making a film? Uh, yeah, there's a big difference between those jobs, but the difference did not used to be so large in the golden age of filmmaking. In the beginning days of filmmaking, up to until about the 60s, a director of photography was called the director of photography because he often called the shots. The director was normally somebody who came from working on the stage, and it was all about performance and and as a screenwriter, perhaps as well. Um, starting with Preston Sturgis, directors who were also screenwriters, they had story and performance to go on. And a director of photography would actually choose the lenses and the lighting and all of that. But in the days of Hitchcock and people like that, um, they were much more creating a, a language of filmmaking that was not just pictorial. So they were involved in choosing lenses, you know, Hitchcock very much involved in editing and, and, and cinematography and the like. But a good director of photography or cinematographer is someone you collaborate with who takes the ideas of the director who might have a pretty, might be pretty well versed in the use of lenses and lighting and different techniques. But the director of photography hopefully has an even better knowledge of that and can take the ideas of the director and translate them into the best possible images uh, to represent the emotional content of your story. So the best DP is a collaborative DP who knows more about it than I do and makes it better than my ideas, as is the case with every department head, whether it's makeup or sound or, or music or editing. I want somebody who's better at that job than I am because I'm fairly well versed in, in all of those departments, but I'm not them. Yeah, yeah, I want them to know more than I do about each of those things. Uh, but I also need to understand the language of their job as well and to be able to convey those ideas to get those best possible images. Yeah, I, I think John Carpenter famously said once that, you know, he he knows the shots he wants, he knows the lenses he wants to use, he needs help with the lighting. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I feel similarly, you know, like as a as a you know, 
photography hobbyist, um, I do have some familiarity with lenses and I do know what kind of shots I like. Um, lighting is like a, a like like someone who writes music. It's it's just a whole other thing that I don't quite grasp. I know I know the basics. Like I could do a three point right. lighting, but but to do you know complicated future film lighting, um, I need that's 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 really where I lean on. Uh, my DP um, to to fill in the gaps and and yeah I mean like I want them to help me pick out the shots and the frames and, and uh, you know and I I think that's that's part of the fun is having someone you can bounce those visual ideas off of and and help them figure out how to bring your kind of magic trick to life. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it, it, a lot of people will do storyboards together and and just have the storyboard artist come up with shots or the DP come up with shots. That's not, these days, that's not directing anymore. It's a very collaborative effort. Absolutely. Woody Woodpickle writes, <laughs> we often hear about the brilliance of actors, directors, writers, etc., but rarely do we hear about PAs, grips, casting directors, etc. Who are some people from the latter character categories you've worked with that you feel went above and beyond and deserve a mention? Well, PA is a transitory position. That that's sure. that's really a job that you hopefully don't hold for more than a few uh, a few films or television shows. Sure, it's a production assistant, and and that's something you want to work up from. Um, but they are absolutely necessary, and great ones are are crucial. But mentioning casting director you get so many brilliant ideas from a really good casting director. Oh yeah. You know, Lynn Kressel is somebody I've worked on uh, all of the Stephen King projects with, or most of them with, and, you know, Matt Frewer was her ideas uh, for mm. the stand. Stephen Weber was her idea for the shining. Um, you know, she will come. I will know a lot of actors, but I don't know. I don't watch a lot of television series. I don't know a lot of the people who are out there who are well known. Um, and and so a good casting director, just as an example from all of those crew positions that that he that Woody is talking about, um, is she's the best example of somebody who is an artist in her own right, who helps make the movie better, who comes up with ideas that are surprising for you, you know, who are not obvious choices that make you go, Oh, what a great idea. You know, that that's a really important line. And Lynn is somebody I think the world of and, and look forward to working with again. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, since we were talking about cinematographers just just a moment ago, I was thinking about a, a time when Andrew Russo, uh, my my DP on my feature and and your DP on Nightmare Cinema, uh, kind of bailed me out of my own head. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a sequence where our main character is supposed to be eavesdropping on um, the parents in the story, and uh, I was very much of the idea that oh we'll just shoot it from uh you know our main character's point of view we don't need to see what's going on on the other side of the door and he's like you're really gonna want that <laughs> yeah yeah he knows what when you get in the editing room you'll go oh damn i wish i'd gotten that shot. yep and 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 the more i looked at the page 
the more I was like, this is a lot of dialogue that she's listening on. Yeah, and he's right. We'd just be basically sitting on her face the whole time. Uh, and and so I listened to him and we, we, you know, we built it into the schedule and we shot it. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. So everybody is important, you know, uh, no matter how unheralded sound people are great. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, um, every every role is crucial. And the the better your crew, the better your movie. Absolutely. Uh, all right. On a final note, and this is something I've always kind of wondered myself because we've 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 always touched on the surface of it. But this this is this might drill down maybe a little more specifically. Jeff wants to know. Can you give an example of something from your Hocus Pocus draft that was too intense for the final version that Disney released? Well, it was really more general, um, Mm -hmm. but there was, you know, uh, Billy Butcherson was not quite so dusty (laughs) in my version. He was a little more fetid, (laughs) you know, he, he was pretty dried out, but it was much more gruesome. And, and there were scenes uh, underneath when they're, uh, they're under the ground and they're all corners of, of caskets and roots and things like that. It it was just a tone more than anything though. I can't say that anybody pulled an eyeball out. I knew I was writing for Disney. Sure. knew we were doing a PG movie that was meant for the whole damn family, whole darn family in that. (laughs) But um, it was just a matter of tone. It wasn't nearly as slapsticky. It, it it just went a little more for scary and not quite as much, uh, uh, not quite as much of the funny stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the final product is, is, has, has almost like a, a, a musical quality to it, which Kenny Ortega obviously was very, oh, he brought that to a big yeah. time and yeah. bet. And you know, that just the way he directed it was yeah. obviously the way to go. Yeah. I mean, it is a, uh, it is a classic and it is about to run on free form almost every day. So <laughs> every day for every day for the month of October, it will pretty be. much. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Mick, Thank you once again for a great Ask Mick Anything. Uh, Thanks to all our fans for awesome questions. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, Joe. And let them know how to get their questions to me. If you want to send questions to us for me to ask Mick on air, uh, you can send them to Mick at Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM. uh, Or you can send them to me on Twitter and Instagram. Joe Russo tweets and Joe Russo Graham, respectively. Thanks a lot. See you soon. Bye, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. 
Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.